this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of in focus i am your host g sampath in february 2019 a petition was filed in the supreme court challenging section 9 of the hindu marriage act 1955 this section of the act which deals with restitution of conjugal rights effectively forces a woman to return to her husband it is now back in focus partly owing to the growing spotlight on the issue of uh, criminalizing marital rape the petition challenging this law titled ojaswa patak versus union of india was last heard on july 8 2021 and has been pending since then with the supreme court website showing no further dates justice rohinton nariman who led the bench which heard the case has also retired meanwhile adding another twist to the discourse around sexual autonomy of the married woman in india the central government has conveyed to the delhi high court that india should not within courts blindly follow the west in criminalizing marital rape so with the petition against section 9 of this act pending in the supreme court for so many months without a hearing there is now a growing clamor for an early resumption of hearings but what exactly do the provisions of this section 9 say what has been their impact so far and how did we end up with such a law in the first place to know more about it and how indian courts have interpreted this law till date we speak with arti raghavan an advocate who practices at the bombay high court arti thank you so much for joining us thanks sampath good to be here arti to start with can you give us uh, the gist of the provisions of section 9 of the hindu marriage act and what it all means in layman's terms so section 9 of the hindu marriage act deals with a remedy of restitution of conjugal rights so this isn't only a remedy that is available to husbands against their errant wives either a husband or a wife can resort to this provision if their spouse has quote unquote withdrawn from their society without reasonable excuse so if the aggrieved spouse is able to establish that the other one has withdrawn without such reasonable excuse then a court may pass a decree for restitution of conjugal rights that is typically when one spouse ends marital cohabitation and it is not a remedy that you can resort to for instance if you're still living under the same roof but if there is an end to that cohabitation a court can order the wife or husband that is left to resume cohabitation so the burden of establishing whether you have left with a reasonable excuse lies on the spouse who has abandoned the marital home um there's a lot of controversy about whether this provision can be used to compel sexual intercourse because that's what you had started with um because you said it's an important issue of sexual autonomy uh the law on the point doesn't appear to indicate that it has been overtly used in the case where one spouse withdraws from continuing marital relations which is the euphemism used for sexual relations with their spouse in its application it is very much rooted in or hinged on the aspect of cohabitation and that is the central object of this provision um the fact that it could result in instances of post or perhaps non consensual sex, sexual relations is separate and perhaps consequent um but it is important to bear in mind that it isn't a remedy that you can resort to if your spouse has stopped 
agreeing to sexual relations with you and in practice how it most often plays out is that it is a precursor to a divorce proceeding or is often a counterblast to a divorce proceeding it very rarely is actually a provision that can be resorted to or has been resorted to to restore marital relations and i mean the reality as we all know is that recourse to courts is the clearest sign of an irretrievable breakdown of a relationship and in this case the relationship is that of marriage um but yeah any discussion of this provision it's important to bear in mind that the overarching policy objective that the courts keep uh, alluding to is that it is to facilitate reconciliation in marital causes and uh, how does the court enforce this then i mean if you don't comply with the order the court may direct attachment of property uh, if there is willful disobedience and if there is continued disobedience it can sell the property and it can also in addition to or in the alternative order payment of maintenance to the spouse that is aggrieved uh, and has been deserted by disobedience you mean disobedience of the court's decree yes that's right a uh, willful disobedience is the standard that is demanded by law so if you can present a reasonable cause as to why you have uh, disobeyed the decree if you can show why resumption of marital uh, cohabitation is difficult because of uh, strained relations and apprehension of threat to your personal safety uh, cruelty and if the court is satisfied that these are reasonable conditions again it i mean it is up to the subjective satisfaction of the person hearing the matter but you can present uh, reasons why it uh, why you should not obey the order of the court in which case the coercive mechanisms of attachment sale or an order of maintenance may not be passed right anyway thank you so much for clarifying uh, the relationship between this law and the entire discourse around marital rape and criminalizing marital rape because so many times uh, this law is invoked in these kinds of uh, debates and it's uh, it's good that you sort of laid it out very clearly that it is about a cohabitation and not so much about going to court to enforce or in, or, or sort of get back marital relations as such but even uh, when we understand this as uh, going to court for cohabitation rights as it were how uh, but does india need or a society need a law like this in the first place how did we end up with it i mean apparently it goes back uh, to some kind of medieval uh, era can you talk a little bit about its origins sure your next question of why do we need such laws is a part of a larger debate but on its uh, genesis or its background um it's from canonical law or ecclesiastical law um where i mean it's um, under administered by the church and it was to provide a remedy for desertion in a marriage it was later adopted and applied by ordinary courts in england and it was you know uh, during the colonial era imported into indian law into our personal laws by legislation and later adopted into various legislations that were enacted post independence and it's important to clarify that section 9 under the hindu marriage act is not um, is not a standalone provision for hindus alone uh, you have similar provisions under the special marriage act it also applies in muslim personal law and yeah to answer your question it its origin is can, in canonical law right so this uh, this law which is titled the hindu marriage act uh, in today's day and age is uh, 
having this provision whose origins are in uh, canonical or ecclesiastical law that's uh, quite interesting <laughs> yeah not something that i'm sure a lot of practitioners of the religion would be willing to acknowledge can you talk a little bit about uh, the famous case uh, involving the actor sarita which often comes up in in discussions about this law sure um so the sarita judgment i'll just use shorthand to describe it um it refers to a judgment of a single judge of the andhra pradesh high court back in 1983 uh and he was adjudicating a petition uh relating to the restitution of conjugal rights that was filed by sarita's husband before a district court sarita as a was a famous actress at that point in time and she was married at the age of 16 uh she had briefly resided with her husband right after marriage uh they'd separated for a period of 5 years thereafter and it was after that period of time that the husband filed this petition uh seeking restitution of conjugal rights uh sarita in turn challenged the constitutionality of this provision under section 9 and she said that amongst other things it violated her rights under article 14 of the constitution that is the right to equality and equal protection of laws and her right under article 21 which is a right to life and personal liberty so the court in fact held that section 9 was unconstitutional and um, you know the discussions are you know are remarkable for a judgment of that time or even if you were to look at um, you know some of the judgments in terms of uh, how progressive they are on gender parameters very remarkable judgment in this regard so in this um the judge had said that conjugal rights have two important elements one is the right to each other's society or companionship and the second is the right to marital intercourse or sexual cohabitation and he saw both these and as inextricably linked and both important constitutive elements of conjugal rights so he recognized that a degree of re- um, restitution of conjugal rights was not limited to the relief of the company of the spouse but could also entail forcible marital intercourse so the judge held that such a decree of restitution of conjugal rights should it be enforced through the mechanism of the code of civil procedure that is through coercive attachment of property through potent you know the threat of sale of property it permitted the decree holder to have the right to sexual cohabitation with an unwilling party so the judge viewed a degree of restitution of conjugal rights as a coercive act of the state compelling sexual cohabitation and said that this offended against the inviolable inviolability of body and mind and invades privacy and that no such positive acts of sex should be forced upon unwilling persons very interestingly he also pointed out that the way in which the law would operate he recognized that the reality is while a husband and wife can equally resort to it if spouses were if one spouse was unwilling there is a disproportionate burden that a wife would bear in the case of forced cohabitation or forced resumption of marital relations because there could be a pregnancy which visits consequences upon a woman that a man may never face and it's interesting that he recognized this reality and said that that also was another reason why the law was violated of article 14 which guarantees equality before the law and equal protection of the law so he rooted it in the physiological difference between a man and a woman that that a wife as a consequence of the decree will be left with possibly the irreversible consequence of a child 
so that was the background of the sarita judgment uh, which clearly sparked a lot of discussion and debate and also resulted in a few other developments in court in that very year there was a judgment by the delhi high court also a single judge that was hearing a restitution of conjugal rights petition uh, where similarly there was a constitutionality challenge and he took a diametrically different view he said that there was an unnecessary emphasis on only seeing sexual relations resumption of sexual relations as the inevitable consequence of such a decree that the law does not coerce such relations and clarify that all it seeks is to ensure cohabitation i think the most interesting part of the delhi high court judgment in harvinder kaur is the fact that there is a lengthy 40 page discussion of the jurisprudence behind restitution of conjugal rights and how it's important to preserve marital relations and how it isn't a tool to extract coercive sex but if you actually look at the 8 to 9 pages of discussions on the facts of the case it is quite disturbing to see how the law operates in practice because what happened in the harvinder kaur case was that a wife had left the marital home complaining of cruelty um she said that her salary was being pocketed by her husband and she was being given a measly stipend she said that her mother-in-law was controlling she complained of being uh, burdened with excessive domestic work and it's interesting that the judge a man of course notes that if the wife is asked to cook and clean on days where a domestic worker is not available there is nothing wrong in it and the worst of it is that there were multiple instances that she complained of of vaginal bleeding after sexual intercourse uh, this fact was not disputed one of the instances of bleeding appears to have resulted in a miscarriage and required her to have been hospitalized for a week but the judge found none of this problematic because he says that she complains that her mother in law is controlling but the mother in law in fact spent a night with her in the hospital and that clearly shows that all is well the husband sent her food from home that was prepared in the home so clearly there is um a stable healthy marital relationship um uh, and the judge co- proceeds to conclude that the wife is the breaker up of the home and um grants a decree for restitution of conjugal rights so what you see over here is a is a judgment that says that the law is not a coercive me- mechanism to extract sexual relations from an unwilling spouse um but it clearly discounts the testimony or the complaints of a wife as to and in what are clearly acts of cruelty and uh, so yeah it, and eventually what happens later that year in, sorry in early 84 is that the supreme court takes up the matter another matter where there was a similar challenge to the constitutionality but it proceeds to affirm the delhi high court judgment and disagree with the view uh, adopted in the andhra pradesh high court judgment and say that the provision is in fact constitutional and it isn't a mechanism to extract coercive sex but it is to further the objective of preserving marital relations right so w- what happens uh, when somebody is charged with non compliance under this law as i mentioned i mean strictly going by the law you look to the provisions of the code of civil procedure which says um that if a party against whom a decree has passed has the opportunity to obey the order and despite this willfully disobeys it they may be subject to an order of attachment of property so here the key is to assess whether there is 
willful disobedience or whether that party has presented reasonable grounds for not complying but uh, typically what happens is one or the other party professes to have attempted to resume cohabitation and the other one denies it so one will file an affidavit saying i went to my wife's uh, paternal home and asked her to come back but she refused to the wife will file an affidavit presenting reasons as to why she doesn't want to resume cohabitation and the court may or may not grant an order for maintenance on that basis but personally i haven't come across any instances of actual attachment of property or sale of property for non compliance it is typically a precursor to divorce proceedings or a counterblast and it just languishes until the marriage is eventually dissolved right now coming back to the present there is at the moment as we speak a petition in the supreme court challenging uh, this provision of the law so can you tell us a little bit about this provision does it also challenge section 22 of the special marriage act for instance which has similar uh, legal provisions and uh, so what has been the supreme court's response to this petition and what is the current status sampath i just want to go back to your previous question on uh, obedience with the order and i also wanted to point out that under the hindu marriage act if for a year a decree for restitution of conjugal rights hasn't been complied with it is a ground to dissolve the marriage so that's something important that the court also keeps emphasizing it is a step that is taken prior to the dissolution of marriage and uh, so that is uh, that's another important thing to bear in mind so you're saying it's not so much for actual restitution per se but as a as as a as a preliminary to the to the dissolution of a marriage inevitably that's how uh, it pans out and that is what the provisions also say that if for one year the decree hasn't been complied with it is a grounds to seek divorce but uh, now sorry i had i uh, flipped a bit but to come back to your question about the challenge before the supreme court um so as far as i'm aware and there is a draft of the petition available online so on that basis it does appear that the challenge is both under the special marriage act and under the hindu marriage act this as you had mentioned earlier was filed in 2019 but the uh, petition appears to have fallen prey to the rampant problem of pendency there are many other critical constitutional issues that have not been taken up by the supreme court challenges that are both of legislation and executive action and they're languishing but the supreme court has weighed in on important constitutional rights that have some bearing on uh, the constitutionality of restitution of conjugal rights uh, the most important of these is the right to privacy which was affirmed by a nine judge bench of the supreme court in the first puttaswami judgment i think what's interesting is how this abstract proposition that there is the existence of a fundamental right to privacy was applied in a later case uh this later case that i'm talking about is the judgment in joseph shine which was given by a five judge bench on the constitutionality of the provision criminalizing adultery the provision was struck down as unconstitutional one of the grounds on which it was challenged was that it was it violated the right to privacy that consensual sexual relations between adults ought to be protected from interference by the state and their right to privacy ought to be upheld um the court however goes on to say that there are several aspects of personal relationships over which there is a legitimate state interest and it mentions marriage including age of marriage 
the remedy of restitution of conjugal rights, judicial separation, divorce, custody, etc. Um, the court says it concerns the well-being of the public as a whole. It recognizes that adultery is a moral wrong and clarifies that it does not warrant criminal intervention as the public censure and penal, uh, penal consequences of the criminal justice system are unnecessary. And it holds that a civil remedy is sufficient. But I think that it is revealing to see this because there is an unquestioning acceptance in this judgment and several other judgments that there is a legitimate state interest in preserving marriage and that you know the preservation of marriages is a public good. And this legitimate interest is a justification for infringement of privacy. Um, so in light of this judgment, it makes me a little skeptical of the likelihood that the court will strike down Section 9. Um, there is every effort to give effect to provision, I mean, not just by the Supreme Court, but at every level. Um, there is a concerted effort to give effect to the provisions of law that slow down the end of marital relations and place a tremendous burden on the parties and interrogates their choice to end marital relations. And I mean, of course, while considering the outcome of this challenge, we have to remember that our judiciary, especially our higher judiciary, is not a particularly progressive one. It continues to be deeply patriarchal, uh, even at the Supreme Court level. Uh, so perhaps, our, I mean, that should weigh on everyone's mind while, you know, deciding how optimistic to be about such a petition. Right. Now, in the in the context of uh, what's been playing out with this uh, petition, if you go back and contrast the two judgments in the Sarita case, where the judge seemed to sort of uh, uh, view the restitution of conjugal rights provision as uh, some in some way enabling coercion in marital relations and and rule accordingly, versus the Delhi High Court uh, judgment, which was subsequently endorsed by the Supreme Court, which sees it purely as a uh, one uh, which 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 sort of bats for cohabitation rights and not necessarily having anything to do with uh, coercion or marital rape. Now, so how do you uh, exactly uh, sort of view the relationship between uh, the restitution of conjugal rights law and the discourse around mar marital rape? Because they keep coming up uh, together uh, in discussions. While marital rape not being a criminal offence in India is definitely an issue, does Section 9 in a way uh, enable the prevalence of marital rape? Is it fair to say that? I don't think it would be fair or accurate to say that the, a law on restitution uh, of conjugal rights enables marital rape. Um, I think the law in its um, in in its provisions and practice is clear that it cannot physically compel cohabitation let alone physically compel sexual relations and at best it only applies financial financial sanctions to encourage reconciliation um, i also think it's inaccurate to say that the failure to criminalize marital rape is necessarily the cause for sexual violence in marriages which is often what is um, put forth in the argument to criminalize marital relations. Um, there are other laws, including provisions of the Indian Penal Code itself, that would be attracted in cases of sexual violence within a marriage. Uh, granted, the sentences are much lighter, but there are provisions. And these have clearly been ineffective as the law enforcement apparatus, that is, the, starting from the police to the courts, 
work in a way to discount experiences and claims of women and further victimize survivors of violence within intimate spaces so while there is a charged debate on whether this exception under the ipc to marital rape should be done away with or not and it is an important discussion to have there also needs to be some sober reflection on whether this will really help or serve women who experience uh, intimate partner violence i think what is needed more is a reckoning with the inherently oppressive and violent nature of the institution of marriage um when it comes to marital relations under the pretext of san- the sanctity of the domestic sphere uh violence and abuse is often given shelter by the law it creates and enforces gender stereotypes it extracts unpaid care work from women it leaves them economically vulnerable and dependent on spouses who are abusive and a very patriarchal law en- enforcement mechanism uh, without any social support leaves women in a position where they are helpless against such violence um so there is a need for an active debate on whether the preservation of marriages is a is necessarily a social good that justifies state intervention and 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 the harms of marriage as an institution per se and not just marital rape as these exceptional incidents that need to be countered by prosecution and sentencing right i think uh, this is an important point that you're making here about how this uh, this this sort of excessive focus on uh, marital rape as uh, which is one among many other kinds of uh, violence which uh, a party in a marriage might endure it could sort of muddy the waters on on the nature of uh, the hierarchies and violence that sort of take place in marriages uh, in india and and the other aspect being of course uh, do we want state intervention in this private domain i mean that's a question to ask isn't it absolutely i mean the question to ask is who are we protecting and what are we protecting because the constant refrain is we are protecting the institution of marriage which is the bedrock of society and there is no deeper in, in, interrogation on why are we protecting this institution whose purpose does it serve does it really help women which is why other safeguards and mechanisms that actually do serve women financial safeguards ensuring that if there is a severance of marital relations they can seek recourse to alimony or maintenance swiftly and not have to wait for years these are things that are deprioritized and there is i mean there is an overemphasis on sexual harms uh which is something that you really that strikes you in the context of the debate around marital rape it's ironically a patriarchal premise to focus on these vaginal violations or sexual acts and see them as more egregious than all other forms of gendered harms or violence that can be inflicted on women particularly in the context of marriage um i mean there is a lot of physical brutality there can be physical brutality emotional violence there can be economic harms that are caused by depriving her of a livelihood um saddling women with uh, unpaid care work to the cost of their uh, career growth and advancement uh so this clamor for criminalizing marital rape comes from this unfortunate patriarchal obsession with vaginal violations um without any you know sort of wider reckoning of the various forms of harms within marriage as, as an institution and whether we should you know stop uh, privileging this institution the way we have historically 
especially if you were coming at it from a feminist perspective right i mean that's i think a very uh, very very important uh, uh, aspect we need to debate further about how uh, this peculiar uh, obsession with uh, vagina violations in itself is itself a, a patriarchal kind of a symptom or a pathology if uh, one may uh, use that word now we were running out of time so one final question uh, just stepping back from the legal uh, nitty gritty of the law from a broader lens what kind of a vision of marriage and conception of womanhood uh, does uh, this provision of the hindu marriage act suggest to you i would say that the way it views marriage as an institution is it sees it as one that is underpinned by the central focus of it is procreation um that is its central project and by its very nature it gives the state and a society a stake in private relations between two parties it is underpinned by endogamy um there is a clear emphasis i mean uh, coming back to the procreation point it focuses it nullifies uh, marriages where people have impotence or an inability to procreate uh it's also problematic in other ways because it greatly stigmatizes mental health problems having a mental disorder makes you un- that makes you unfit for marriage and procreation of children is a ground to seek a decree of nullity so in many ways it is regressive and the striking aspect or the overarching aspect of it is the emphasis on preservation of marital relations and i mean it it's written in an express provision of it section 23 which says before proceeding to grant any relief under this act it shall be the duty of the court in the first instance in every case where it is possible to make every endeavor to bring about a reconciliation between parties so yeah i think if you were to step back back from the nitty gritties it is seeing this unquestioning acceptance of marriage as a social good and a social good that is that the central project of which is the procreation of children um by two healthy individuals and i mean in a progressive society these assumptions and these objectives really need to be questioned and i think the state should not have a stake in or a say in these private relations between people and their choices of who they want to be with and how long they want to be with them right casting marriage as primarily uh, an avenue for uh, sort of protecting and promoting procreation endogamy and giving the stake a state a stake in the preservation of uh, marriage i mean this these i think are broadly as you say uh, the highlights of the hindu marriage act and uh, we'll have to wait and see if and when uh, the supreme court comes back uh, to this ojaswa uh, patak case and resumes hearings Uh, and maybe then we should probably uh, be able to come back and uh, revisit this subject once again arti thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights on this matter my pleasure thanks so much in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon